Thank you, Jenny, very much indeed. It's lovely to be with you tonight, uh, whether you're here with us in the building or whether you're watching online. I want you to imagine uh, you're in a car and you're driving along a motorway and it's, and it's foggy. In fact, it's really, really, really foggy. You can't see very much. And suddenly, out of the swirling soup of confusing fog, uh, comes a man running down the central reservation and he's frantically waving his arms and he's shouting but you can't hear what he's shouting now i wonder what you would do in those circumstances it seems to me we'll come to it i reckon you've got a couple of choices uh, you could ignore him uh, and you might even think to yourself did that really happen as you kind of come uh, whizzing past uh, you, yeah, you, and you could stop, couldn't you? That would be the sensible thing to do. You see, you're, you're wise. And uh, basically, you could, you could say to yourself, I don't know who this guy is, I don't know what the problem is, but I can't see that far ahead. And so to be on the safe side, I'm going to stop and see what happens. Uh, I'll tell you in a moment what the third possibility might be. Um, this actually happened on the M4 a few years ago. And uh, there was a massive pile-up in some really dense fog. And actually, it was very sad because quite a few people were killed and injured. The third thing that people did is very British, and that was that they, they angrily beeped their horn at the man who was running down the central reservation, which is a very British way of telling someone off, isn't it? Just to sort of, just to show your displeasure by beeping your horn at them. And quite a few cars who either ignored this man running down the central reservation or beat their horns at him ended up in the pileup. And on the day, the wise thing to do, as Andrew absolutely said, uh, was uh, not, to, um, not to just ignore it, not to beat your horn, but to slow down and to heed the warning. Hoping that everything will be all right or being annoyed with someone who tells us that everything isn't all right is the way of a fool. And we are going to look at that in a bit more detail tonight. Now, today we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been around here for a while, you've actually been doing it on and off for quite a long time. And uh, we have uh, looked at all the various different bits. Uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, Louise did an epic summary of the Sermon on the Mount so far. It was so good, we've all been talking about it ever since. So just by way of a recap, here is our very own Louise, speaker extraordinaire, telling us about the Sermon on the Mount so far. Jesus talked of this upside down kingdom where the poor in spirit and the persecuted are given the kingdom of heaven where the meek will inherit the earth and those who mourn will be comforted. That's the Beatitudes. Jesus tells his followers that they are salt and light, both preserving and illuminating the goodness of God in a dark world through glorifying the Father. Jesus then talks about how he has come to fulfill the laws of old by calling his people to more, to embody the spirit of the law in our hearts rather than merely keeping to the letter of the law. Jesus wants more than people thought he did. To the command, you shall not murder, Jesus adds to not even get angry. To the command, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus adds to not even look at someone else lustfully. 
Jesus calls for dignity and honour in marriage and divorce and for us to not make oaths that we can't keep, to avoid revenge and instead be more loving and more generous than we think we should be, to love our enemies as well as our friends in this upside-down kingdom. And Jesus speaks of the heart as we give, as we pray, or as we fast, these discipleship things. He doesn't want trumpets, a parade, or a display. He's speaking of heart posture, that our worship is for God and God alone. Then Jesus talks about material things. He says, don't store up treasures on earth. Don't store up money or possessions. But instead, know that you can have treasures in heaven, spiritual blessings, and a life in God. He says we shouldn't store up those material things, but even more so, we shouldn't even let ourselves worry about them. Jesus reassures us that our Father provides for us in more ways than the flowers of the fields or the birds in the sky. They don't worry about tomorrow. We're called to authenticity and freedom in the way we worship, the way we love, and the way we live. We're also told not to be judgmental because none of us are perfect. We can leave the judgment to God. If there's a speck in someone else's eye, but there's a plank in my own, maybe I need to have a go at removing the plank first, or at least let God remove it. And then we're encouraged to ask, to seek, to knock, to come before God, a Father who loves you, to seek more of the kingdom, knowing that he wants to give good gifts to bless his children. And that's kind of where we are now. That's the main bit of Jesus' sermon. And now we come to the call to action. Was that okay, listening to yourself, Louise? It's so bad. It's so, yeah, it's not. Hang on, there we go. I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's mesmerizing. It's challenging. It's inspiring. And this final section is not the first time that Jesus confronts us with our own inaction and, uh, and sense how easily we become hypocrites, we become uh, play actors, we become people who perform a Christian life with a beautiful uh, exterior, but we let the rot and the bitterness carry on within. But that's how he chooses to end this majestic sermon. And the, the last section follows on from what Louise was saying with a list of actually very strong choices in chapter 7. So the first choice is, will we choose Jesus, uh, who uh, Jesus describes himself as the narrow gate or the difficult path? Will we choose him or will we choose the broad gate and what you might call the motorway of death, which is easy and paved and always seems to be going downhill but is actually leading to destruction. The second question he asks is, well, who will we listen to? He says, who, whose wisdom will we draw from? Uh, the true or the false teacher? And he says, uh, one of the key ways that we will know is to look at the fruit of their lives. Not just to, to listen to their words, but to look at their lives and whether they themselves are living it out. And then uh, last time, we were looking at the question of, is our Christian profession, is it all meaningless lip service, playing a part, uh, saying the right things, even doing the right things? Or is it, is it real? Is it authentic obedience arising from the heart?
I wonder what decisions you've made as we've gone along through this series, as we've listened to Jesus. Now, rather brilliantly, at the end of the sermon, we have this deceptively simple parable to close the Sermon on the Mount. And and it takes a a wide lens look at, I guess, the ultimate question, the the big question that we all have to answer, whether, whether we like it or not. And that question is, how do I do life? Now, what, what principles am I going to actively apply to the kind of person that I am and the kind of world that I want to live in? Or to borrow one of Jesus' pictures here, what foundations, if I'm building something, what foundations do I want to be building on? Because we, we all make choices when it comes to that. None of us don't make a choice. We all make a choice. The question is, is it a wise choice? and a good choice. Now, of course, there's an infinite variety of people here and listening to this now. But Jesus says we will ultimately all fall into one of two camps. We will either show ourselves wise or we will show ourselves to be a fool. And we're going to look at both of those. Two people in Jesus' story build a house. Two people experience a dramatic epic storm and floods. Two people discover that this storm revealed something really important about the house that they built. So in a sense, it reveals or it it exposes, the storm does, something fundamentally important about the house that they've built. So those are the similarities, but it's the differences that matter. One was wise, the other was a fool. And this was shown in their choice of place of where to build the house. One chose to build on rock, that was the wise person. One chose to build on sand, that was the fool. And Jesus then applies this image with his customary razor-sharp precision. Jesus says very clearly, you are wise if you hear the words of Jesus and you put them into practice. That's where wisdom lies. You're a fool, he says, if you solely hear his words and do nothing about them. You just sort of let them, you leave them hanging, floating in the wind. You you hear them, you know that they're there, but you do nothing to ground them. You don't plant them and let them grow in you. You don't lay them down as the foundation on which you seek to build a life. Wise or fool? Now, it's worth pausing to consider, why would anybody choose to build a house on sand? Or, to give the question its full force, why would any of us choose to be a fool in the eyes of Jesus? Why would that happen? I can think of three reasons. The first is ignorance. Someone might say, well, I've never built a house before, so how was I to know that building on sand was such a bad idea, because I have no experience to base this decision on. So you could say, well, this is my first and only life, so how was I to know how important it was, not, not only to hear the words of Jesus, but actually to do something with them, to apply them, to live them, to, to give them room to grow in my heart. How was I supposed to know? Uh, The second reason to build on sand is laziness. 
because uh, building a house is hard enough work uh, in and of itself. It, it's considerably more work if you have to build on rock. It, it's just much more work. Here's a pile of sand, here's a rock. It's going to take much more effort. You know, building on sand relatively straightforward. No real foundations to dig. You just sort of crack on with it. If you come over to the rock over here, you've got to build some decent foundations. You've got to make sure that engages with the rock. And only then can you start to build the house. Building a life focused on the words of Jesus carries with it a hundred challenges and sacrifices and, of course, a thousand joys. But there might be a moment in all of our lives where, in a sense, we, we look at both. We look at the pile of sand and we look at the rock and we do a mental calculation. We say, you know, I'm all for an easy life. And so I'm going to choose the sand. The third reason that we might build on sand is that sense that we are special or unique or that the normal rules don't apply to me. So we might say, well, I can build a house on the sand. Not everybody can. Most people need to build on the rock. I can build on the sand because storms and floods don't happen to me, so I will be okay. Or we might say, I, in and of, I'm in myself. I am strong enough and smart enough and resilient enough to get through anything. Other people need safety nets and crutches, and they need God to sort of be there because they're weak. I am strong. I am special. I don't need his help. Three compelling reasons to build on the sand. Now, it's harder to argue ignorance when you've uh, had the last couple of years us just talking about the Sermon on the Mount all the time. But being lazy or thinking that we're better than other people is something that all of us are quite good at from time to time, even though Jesus so clearly here says that it is the path of the fool. Now it's important, and this is not easy to say, it's important that we recognize that what is primarily in view in this end of the Sermon on the Mount is ultimate judgment when we die. That's what Jesus is thinking about and talking about. Uh, the reason I say that is, is because it's been such a common theme in Matthew 7. So in Matthew 7 verse 13, Jesus talks about uh, the broad road that leads where? That leads to destruction. In verse 19 of chapter 7, Jesus says, Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, one of you remember what happens to it, it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. And then maybe some of the, the toughest uh, and most challenging words that Jesus ever spoke, when he talks about those who've just paid lip service to him, even done great things in his name, but it's never been real, it's never been grounded, Jesus' words to them, if you remember from two weeks ago, are simply, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And now in verse 27 of chapter 7, we have the, 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 the house of the fool falls with a great crash and is destroyed by this storm and this flood. And these, I'm sure, are always of Jesus talking about the, the judgment 
that we meet when we die. In this world of sin and rebellion that we are so entwined with, nothing will matter more than my choice of the foundation on which I choose to do life. I don't want destruction. I don't want fire. I don't want Jesus saying, I never knew you. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. Now, to some extent, the truth of Jesus' closing parable is also seen in the personal crises that shake our world and expose its foundations. I've seen it a hundred times. You will have done too. The unexpected diagnosis that someone gets that's really hard and challenging. The person has been doing great in life, but then they have an affair or they're caught cooking the books or they do something tremendously stupid and irresponsible. The person that has this treasured job or treasured status and they lose it. Uh, the person that never gets the promotion or the recognition that they feel they deserve. Those mini crises can reveal, or maybe the better words, expose, like a, a, the way that when a flood washes through somewhere, it exposes what's going on, can expose what's beneath the surface when the bravado and the pretty decorations are stripped away. Some of you have been there. You know, you know what it's like to go through a season of life or an experience of life where all that kind of stuff is stripped away and you, you feel very exposed. Some of you are there right now. If this is your experience, then it is a gift. And let me explain why, because you can use it to your advantage. When that storm, mini storm, struck, what did that storm reveal about you as a person? Maybe it's the stress of, of taking a particular set of exams, or moving away from home for the first time, or seeing uh, a, you know, a, a parental uh, relationship breakdown, whatever it was, or an illness. What did that storm reveal about your foundations? What bit of you wobbled in that moment? What, what bit of you suddenly appeared actually very insubstantial and fluffy, lacking strength and grace? If, if you've had that experience of a mini-crisis, it is a gift that you are able to pray into. Your, your house is, is up and being built to plan with Jesus for some serious underpinning of parts of your house. We once lived in a house, and one area of the house was sort of basically beginning to tilt. And that was because the foundations had never been built properly. And so what they have to do is they have to underpin it. So they have to get to the outside of the house, they have to dig out loads of earth, and then they have to since put back foundations in there to keep the whole house from collapsing. That's now part of our discipleship, that, that when we have experiences that rock us and that it expose where we're weak. So for instance, many people find that when they have a difficult crisis like that, suddenly their own heart is full of bitterness and anger and self-pity 
And it, it sort of takes us by surprise. Like, where, where on earth did that come from? Well, that gives you something to pray into. And what we then get to do, often with the help of other friends, is to, is to dig away the, the stupid, ignorant, waste of time part of our foundations and instead pour in the concrete of God's word. Now, of course, I don't want destruction or fire for you, but what's really important is that Jesus doesn't want destruction or fire for you either. Like the very best hospital consultant, Jesus wants to lay it all out for us. Here's what you need to do, Simon, to build a life, to do life. This ending of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a threat by Jesus, it's a warning. And our situation is way better than driving down a foggy M4 and having to make a split-second decision as a random stranger appears out of the darkness, waving their hands and shouting at us. Because maybe they are a fake. Maybe they are a troublemaker just out to cause trouble. But it's not a random stranger. It's Jesus who is lovingly warning us. He is utterly trustworthy. We can weigh his words. We can read them in the daylight. We are learning that he knows what he's talking about. And as I've read and preached through the Sermon on the Mount, I keep coming back to the same place. I want to be the one who hears your words, Lord Jesus, and puts them into practice. And this is not primarily about self-preservation, saving my own skin. It's just that it's such a great way to live. God's holy, courageous, forgiving, generous, wise way to live. So let's finish with how we might do this. Firstly, we have to know the words of Jesus. We have to know them. We have to live with them. We have to know them deeply and intimately. As we've read the Sermon on the Mount together, which is only Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, three chapters of one gospel, I've kept on thinking there's so much here. Now, I, could, I sort of feel I could spend the rest of my lifetime sort of thinking about it and in my own weak way trying to begin to be some of these things and act in these ways. We've got to read and reread this stuff. And my advice would be concentrate on the sections that annoy you and, to, and that get under your skin. See, some of you fell at week one of the Sermon on the Mount, which is quite a long time ago, where we just looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. You wouldn't have said it out loud, but in your own mind and in your own heart, you thought, I'm too proud and I'm too much admired, even in church, to say that the place to begin to build a good life is to admit that I'm poor in spirit, because actually, I'm rather fabulous. So why would I start such a stupid place to start? So you're cross with Jesus week one. He's only just got going. Then Jesus starts talking about anger and lust. And quite a few of you thought, he's just over the top on this. 
He's exaggerating. He is a preacher after all. We all know what they're like when they get up on the pulpit and start telling stories. He's just, he's exaggerating. Anger can't be as bad as murder. And lust can't be as bad as adultery. So Jesus, I'm just not going to follow you there. I'm not going to live my life with such a, a close attention to detail that I've got to be thinking and, a sense, and monitoring my own heart and mind to that extent. I just want to put up a beautiful image on a screen for other people to look at. So some of you, you sort of departed from Jesus then. Then you thought, well, fasting's not about time with God. It's about losing weight. And treasure in heaven well that's going to play nicely with Jesus's poor contemporaries but you've got or your parents have got an expensive house and a nice car and you go on holiday and it feels like you've got great treasure now so why would you want to be going without things now for treasure in the future when you are sitting happy on a pile of gold you think "Mm, Jesus I'm not going to go with you there Start with the parts that annoy you and get under your skin because that is where your house needs some underpinning. You need to read, you need to learn, and you need to love the words of Jesus. Second thing that I'd like to do, and I'd like to offer it as a way of closing tonight, is is to use a very ancient practice that's called the examine. It's a bit of a posh church word. Uh, and basically, it's, it's a discipline of reflection with the Holy Spirit, confession and asking for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Some people do it every day at the end of the day. Some people do it every week uh, at the end of a term or a season of life. I'd just like to try it together for two minutes as we close. So I'd just like to invite you to, to close your eyes if that helps you concentrate uh, with me. And we're going to do three different things. And each of them, we pray, will be guided by God's Spirit. The first one, we're just going to say to God's Spirit, God's God's Spirit, will you please just turn a floodlight on my heart and on my spirit? And will you point out to me, God, the areas of darkness and disobedience that exist in my life or to change the picture show me the the bits of the house where the foundations are stupid and rubbish where I'm I'm building on sand it's not going to last it's going to fall down let's just quietly say to God please by your spirit turn on the floodlight And just show me one or two of the areas of darkness and disobedience. Let's just be quiet. Let God's Spirit speak to each one of us. The second thing that we do is we, we take that because it's a gift from God. And we say to God, God, I am so sorry that I tolerate this darkness and this disobedience within my soul. And I'm so sorry that I'm such a fool that I think I could build a house on this sinking sand. 
I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry that I don't trust you. I'm sorry that I, I, I'd rather just hear your words but not put them into practice. Forgive me. Forgive me. I get things wrong so often. Help me, Lord. But we don't stop there. Because the third thing we do is we plead with the Spirit of God to produce the fruit of God in our lives. Holy Spirit, we invite you, come in your light and your love. Grow the fruit of your Spirit in me. Holy Spirit, lay stronger, deeper, truer foundations in me. Make me more like Jesus. Help me to love like Jesus. Give like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Release, Lord, in me good gifts that will be for your glory.